This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hello and welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. When Columbia University Dr. Kelly Harding began her clinical practice, she never intended to explore the invisible factors behind our health. But then there were the rabbits. In 1978, a seemingly straightforward experiment designed to establish the relationship between high blood cholesterol and heart health in rabbits discovered that kindness, in the form of a particularly nurturing postdoc who petted and spoke to the lab rabbits as she fed them, made the difference between a heart attack and a healthy heart. Dr. Kelly Harding discovered the rabbits were just the beginning of a much larger story. Groundbreaking research illustrates that love, friendship, community, life's purpose, and our environment can have a far greater impact on our health than anything that happens in the doctor's office. For instance, hugs have the power to fight off colds. Learning something new or volunteering can add years to your life. Napping regularly can decrease one's risk of heart disease, and people living with purpose are much more likely to stay healthy. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with Kelly Harding about our health and new ways to look at it and the latest discoveries in the science of compassion, kindness, and human connection. I'm Armin Brutt. We'll start talking about how kindness affects the way that we live, work, and play when Positive Parenting continues right after this. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brutt, after this. From the MrDad.com radio network. Check it out, it's the Terminator. Hey, when'd you get back, huh? Did you have to shoot anyone? Why are you so distant? Are you not happy to see me? So what's the deal? You gonna get a job now or what? Why are you being so jumpy? Put all that stuff behind you, okay? No one knows what it's like to come back from Iraq or Afghanistan unless they were there. Join other veterans at communityofveterans.org because we know where you're coming from. Brought to you by Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America and the Ad Council. McGruff the Crime Dog here. Let's hear from an identity thief. Identities are easy to catch online. I send people an official-looking email pretending to be their bank or credit card company and ask them to confirm their personal information. Fuck them every time. Safeguard your personal information on the phone, online, and especially at home because half of identity theft occurs by someone you think you no. Keep your identity to yourself and take a bite out of crime. Learn more from the National Crime Prevention Council at ncpc.org. A message from this station, the U.S. Department of Justice, Crime Prevention Coalition of America, and the National Crime Prevention Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, and my guest for this part of today's show is Dr. Kelly Harding, who's the author of The Rabbit Effect, Live Longer, Happier, and Healthier with the Groundbreaking Science of Kindness. Kelly, thanks for joining us. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. So tell us about the rabbits. Why don't we start off with that? <laughs> You're like, what is the deal with these rabbits? Absolutely. So so my book is called The Rabbit Effect, and it's based on this study that I heard about when I was in training that sort of changed my trajectory of my career and how I thought about health. So, so the rabbits refers to this study that was done in the late 1970s when there was still this question about you know, heart health and diet. And so this really lovely researcher named Dr. Robert Neerham was looking at, you know, 
virtually genetically identical rabbits getting high-fat diets. And what he found in his study is that one of the groups of his rabbits had way better health outcomes than the others. And so he was trying to figure out what was going on. He thought there was something wrong with the protocol, but everything checked out. It turned out that all those rabbits were under the care of one particularly caring, loving postdoc. Um, so they, they thought, could it be that, you know, love and kindness were somehow changing, you know, the biology of the rabbits? Because it turned out this researcher wasn't just you know, feeding the rabbits. She was also, you know, petting them, talking to them, giving them love and affection. And so um, they repeated the study this time with really tightly controlled conditions and, in fact, found out that, indeed, it did seem as though, you know, the social connection was changing this rabbit or we're changing these rabbits biology. So, you know, that's sort of like the beginning of a much bigger story about health. And that's, you know, how our social world impacts our health far more than, you know, as a doctor, I had previously realized. You know, I'm just puzzled by that in a way, because I I was thinking that it, it also, in addition to what you said about, it opens up our eyes to certain things. It also speaks to the idea that there might be some kind of profoundly universal love that I I would have thought that, I mean, there's a lot of research now about the importance of of social relationships between people and that that people who have more friends, particularly older people, do better. So I would have thought, okay, rabbits who have more rabbit friends would do better, (laughs) but having a, a person friend would seem, it seems unusual that, that there would be that kind of connection. Does that make any sense? Well, I think what you're getting at is, so, and a couple things to keep in mind. So, yes, you know, fast forward to 2019, and we now know that loneliness as, is as significant a risk factor for poor health outcomes as things like smoking 15 cigarettes a day or, no. you know, high blood pressure, heavy alcohol use, or even obesity. It's a, it's a, you know, loneliness it's is a, a bigger big risk deal. factor to health yeah. than being severely overweight, which is pretty incredible because that's, you know, most people think about health and think about sort of like, you know, diet, exercise, sleep, and maybe the occasional trip to the doctor, but not necessarily like, you know, having a good friend to call and um, or somebody that they're close and connected to. So, um, you know, so I think looking through our eyes now, that seems like, you know, sort of thinking about that makes more sense. At the time, um, it was a pretty radical idea. And, you know, much to Dr. Neerum's credit, he didn't dismiss the finding and just continue on with a different researcher to get the results he wanted. Like, he really right. stopped and said, you know, there's something pretty profound going on here. No, I think that that's, that's just amazing. I just would have thought that the, the social connection would have been with another animal of the same Rabbit. species. Right. Yeah, but I guess, it, I, I wonder if maybe they'll, somebody will do an experiment that way and see whether they, because if they keep all these rabbits in separate cages, if they don't have a chance to play. But anyway, as far as it goes, it, it, we, we know that there's some connection and it's been, it's been extended to experiments with people as well is, is the bottom line of it, right? Is that thanks to that particular research, other people have, have taken it and run with it and that's what you're doing. Right. So there is ample evidence that our connections to other people are the major determinant of our health. And I think, you know, we tend to think of health as pretty narrowly defined in this country as health care oftentimes. But, you know, probably while access to quality medical care is absolutely critical for every person and every human being, at the same time, it probably only accounts for about 10 to 20 percent of our overall health status. 
which is, you know, pretty mind-boggling, especially as somebody who's dedicated her career to that. So, yeah. you know, like what is this other 80 to 90 percent? We know genes play some role in that, but here's where it also gets interesting. It turns out that our genes are far more malleable than we had appreciated originally, and it turns out that, you know, our social environment is actually also changing how our genes are expressed, and that's mm-hmm. now known through this process of epigenetics or sort of on top of the genes, um, how proteins get expressed. And it's really fascinating research, and it's where sort of there's this, like, exciting, you know, tidal wave of both the public health research along with this sort of, you know, much more microscopic, what's happening with, like, the neuroimmune system, what's happening in epigenetics, and also what's happening in a field of um, genetics also known as telomere research, which you may have heard about. Yep, yep, the the length of them correlating to length of life generally. Yes, exactly. And, you know, I think actually back to your question about like if rabbit rabbit pairs you know we we know that for humans our relationships with our pets are also quite beneficial there's lots of studies showing you know our it's basically we are social creatures as human beings and i imagine it's the same for animals too but you know we really thrive when we're connected and caring for other people and um and you know it's interesting because there's studies that you know, people live longer when they have a sense of purpose, and that sense of purpose is often tied to caring for someone, but it can also be something. Like, there have even been mm-hmm. studies showing that, you know, caring for, like, a house plant for people who are in a nursing home is actually seemingly beneficial for people doing better. It's like it's just somehow part of who we are. Yeah. You know, and the whole epigenetic thing, I think, is, is fascinating. I, I think of it sometimes as the the connection between nature and nurture in a way that that there's certain ah. things that are there but because uh, I remember the first time I ever heard about that had to do with the I think it was studies of people in the uh, Irish potato famine or something like that when the it was the children of people who had had it had to endure starvation for a long period of time were more likely to become obese and it had to do with, with something being turned on in one of the genes where the genes were basically saying, well, we never know where we're going to eat again, so we better stock up right now. If so, Armin, you're totally right. And isn't it amazing how adaptive our bodies and our genetics are? I mean, that's absolutely incredible just right there. And then I think the other piece of that is also, you know, generally what's happening is, you know, for the survival of the organism in the short term isn't always the best for the long term. So, you know, sort of it makes sense if you're in starvation conditions that, you know, calories you get would be, you know, better utilized. Um, But the downside is, you know, it's like then suddenly you're in line at McDonald's and the dollar or some fast food place with like the dollar menu. And, you know, suddenly that gene is not as adaptive anymore. So, um, you know, so there were probably the study you might be thinking about is also with the Dutch famine studies, which are some famous public health studies that I talk about in the book. And sort of, you know, what's also cool about this and what I love is sort of like the science of how people figured this out. Because, you know, for so long, we thought our genes were fixed and people kind of operated under that assumption that, you know, you are who you are. But in fact, there's this like huge range of malleability and Talking to the researchers who figured this out as as part of writing the rabbit effect was so much fun because it's like, wow, isn't that incredible that actually, you know, the things that we do to take care of ourselves and others are actually, you know, changing our genetic destiny to some extent and potentially even having, you know, this trickle-down effect for generations to come. 
No, I, and I, I got to say, as I don't usually comment on people's writing style, but I, I one of the things that, that as a reader I appreciate in reading the book is that you do have a, I mean this in the most positive way, kind of a, a childlike, gosh, that's incredible kind of feel about it, <laughs> that, which, is, which is nice. I mean, it's really nice to say, here's somebody who really is marveling at this. It's something that comes out in the book, and I think it makes it easier to read. Oh, well, I appreciate that. And I think, you know, actually, it's probably contagious to some extent because, you know, talking to people who've, like, won Nobel Prizes and other things, like, it's really striking this, like, sense of childlike awe just about, isn't this science, like, awesome? <laughs> it's yeah. really, yeah. it's so, I, that's probably some of that carries over. But, you know, as a doctor, I think that's that's the other thing is the human body and the human brain just continually surprise you in these, like, amazing ways. So, you know, hopefully I've conveyed that in The Rabbit right. Effect. Talking to Kelly Harding, who is the author, as she said, of The Rabbit Effect, Live Longer, Happier, and Healthier with the Groundbreaking Science of Kindness. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we will keep talking to Kelly. I don't recycle. I mean, we can just find another planet for your kids to live on, you know? Noted non-recycler Tommy Crenshaw talks about the future. Oh, I can totally see finding another planet that can support life when ours fills up with trash. As an alternative to recycling? Yeah, an alternative. So we, like, don't have to do it. Recycling. There are lots of planets. Finding one is just a matter of time. Many people say that recycling is pretty simple and convenient. A matter of keeping select items out of the trash. A lot simpler than finding a new planet, Tommy. Come on, there's a bunch of planets out there. Would you recycle on this new planet, Tommy? Or just use it up and throw it away too? I, I really don't have a clue. Log on to yougottobekidding.org and learn about all the ways you can recycle. Unless you're into lame excuses like Tommy's. Hey, recycling's just not my thing. Starting over on a new planet? Now that's exciting. Don't be that guy. Unless you want people looking at you funny. Log on to yougottobekidding.org. I'm four years old, and I'm the only one in my whole class that can tie his own shoes. My mom took me to the circus for my birthday. Half my friends already went, but now I've gone too. Most kids make fun of me because I still believe in the tooth fairy. But I got five bucks yesterday. I believe. A third of the kids in my eighth grade class drink alcohol regularly. Over 99% of my class has been offered illegal drugs. Half of my college classmates binge drink, abuse drugs, or do both. But the frequent dinners I had with my family have helped make sure I'm not one of them. Go to casafamilyday.org, take the Family Day Pledge, and get tips on how to talk to your kids about drugs and alcohol. Have dinner with them often, and you can significantly lower their risk of substance abuse. Dinner makes a difference. A message from the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia University. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Kelly Harding, who's the author of Live Long... I'm sorry, The Rabbit Effect. The subtitle is Live Longer, Happier, and Healthier with the Groundbreaking Science of Kindness. And I want to get into some of the, the different kinds of aspects of the science. There's a, a bunch of different chapters about the factors, and you talk about one-on-one relationships and ties to the community. Let's talk about the, the different types of social interactions and, and the effects that they have on us. Are, is there one particular kind of social interaction that's better than any others? Each human being exists in what I 
call these, you know, areas of hidden factors around our life. And that's, you know, really our one-on-one relationships, our friendships that extend beyond that, you know, thinking about also our workplaces, which are not typically something we think about with health, but have a big impact. Also, our education systems, our neighborhoods, and then how we treat each other on the bigger society level. So what's really cool is, you know, for every person listening, you actually have a fairly sizable impact on the world around you, whether you're aware of it or not, and the health of the people around you, which is also exciting. Can you explain how that works? Sure. So, you know, I think most people, like just to give an example, so, you know, most people would say having a good doctor is important to your health, but it turns out, you know, for in your workplaces, it turns out having a good manager is also critical for avoiding disease. You know, we've, there are tons of studies now showing that people who work in supportive work environments take less sick leave, that they have lower company health care expenses, and they're actually more productive. Um, So it's interesting if you're somebody who's a manager listening, you know, you can rethink some of the things that you're doing in terms of the health of your employees. And one of those big lessons is just to be kind and think about how you can support people better as people. Well, how does that work? I mean, if you're if you're thinking about should you go home and just catch up on whatever sort of cleaning you have to do or go out and have a beer with your friends from work who've invited you you know where do you where do you draw the line on that should you should you do generally more socializing or is it i mean is there i mean because I, I, this is maybe getting it too far into the weeds but I, I look at a lot of studies on nutrition for example and you know, and they say well you should have people should have more vitamin D but nobody says exactly how much vitamin D you should have or you should drink less coffee but nobody says you should have you know how much you should have how, what what's it what's the appropriate amount so uh, i guess i'm kind of wondering how you know <laughs> like how do you titrate relationships <laughs> well i mean is is there a a, a certain amount of time that is optimal or a certain number of friends that's optimal or a certain amount of time to spend socializing? Because I I would imagine that it it might be like other aspects of our health where too much of a good thing starts to have detrimental effects. Well, Armin, as far as I know, nobody's ever overdosed (laughs) on like sort of like kindness and friendship. So that's a good thing because, you know, I think the other piece to keep in mind is that, you know, for many people, you know, again, getting back to like how we think about health, that particularly in the U.S. is, you know, we don't often think about like we don't take socializing as seriously as we do, like how many sit-ups we're doing at the gym or something. So, you know, it just even introducing that idea is that actually our social relationships are something we need to tend to. So I'll, I'll say this, as far as what we know in terms of loneliness, it's both the quantity of connections and then the quality of those connections. So, you know, it might vary from person to person how you feel connected, but you know, really it gets down to like having like at least one good friend and somebody that you can call. And, you know, for many people who are listening, they may not even have one person that they feel particularly close to. And so the bigger question is like, how can we sort of like create opportunities for some of these connections to happen? So that actually gets at one of the other hidden factors that I think is really important. And it's nice because it kind of cuts through all the different areas and that's education. So, you know, we know that education is actually critical for health. In fact, it's probably like the mother of or the granddaddy of all the, um, 
you know, all the hidden factors. Um, for instance, we know that, you know, for every one life saved by biomedicine, it appears that education saves eight. So, um, but the nice thing is you, it's not just formal education, it's lifelong learning. So for people listening, you know, an easy thing to do is just look for something that you're interested in. And you can even just go do like a, you know, you could sign up for like a semester class or a continuing education thing, but you can also just do like a afternoon cooking class or, you know, afternoon, you know, whatever it is that you're interested in. Even the local library offers free classes. And the idea is just to show up to something that you like. One, it engages your brain, but two, it's also, you know, building your social connections. And the other piece of it is invite a friend along, you know, even someone you may not know well just to reach out is, you just want to like continually be planting these seeds of support potentially in your community. Hmm. So do we know what it is exactly about the education? You mentioned a few things. I mean, there's the, it helps your brain and there's also the social connection, but is it, is it the combination, the, that you can, the mix of all of those things that somehow magically creates better health for people? Or or can you tell if there's one specific thing? that one more time so no can you tell what can you tell whether there's one specific aspect of it that's more helpful than others well i think it's it's multifactorial and part of it is you know education in itself is protective in terms of sort of like you know the boost that it gives formal education potentially you know for things like you know job and income down the road and there's also sort of the direct aspects of education such as like you know learning how to navigate your health and your community in a more positive engaging way or adaptive way and then the other piece of it is there and this is where it kind of gets like pretty mind-boggling is this idea that actually it looks as though education actually helps prolong telomeres or those little bits at the end of the DNA that help protect our lifespan and seem correlated with all causes of disease. So, you know, there's something happening on a micro level. And then there's also, and also we know that education is beneficial for keeping brains healthy. But there's a there's one other piece of this that I want to mention, and that's that education often ties into purpose. And we know now that people with a sense of purpose live longer and, you know, and they live better even with illness. And, you know, just an example of that for people with, um, there's really interesting studies like, um, you know, for people who, um, on autopsy at death, have fairly significant plaques and tangles or signs of Alzheimer's disease that actually, if they reported in life having a higher sense of life purpose and usefulness, that they actually functioned better far longer than people who didn't, even though they had the signs of disease. So it's those kinds of things. Like it's almost like we can somewhat override our biology with some of this. But, you know, the big piece of this is we have to be talking about our our mental health and our mental well-being and our engagement with each other and society. Yeah. I mean, I'm wondering how how that works to I mean it's it's fascinating. It's another one of those things that I mean I remember doing an article years ago about back pain and was interviewing a back surgeon who was saying you know, the studies of x-rays and MRIs show that about half the people who have debilitating back pain have no noticeable impairment on their on their imaging and then half of the people who have horrible imaging that you would think they shouldn't be able to walk have no pain. So, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of fascinating what we can overcome by whatever we're doing. 
Yeah, actually, back pain is a great example. So, you know, I talk about what got me interested in this and what led to the rabbit studies and writing the rabbit effect were these medical mysteries. And basically, exactly what you described with the back pain is, you know, patients who, so I, um, you know, I was really curious about patients who did really well despite serious diagnoses. And then the flip side of that, patients who, you know, who on paper, everything looks okay. Like there are the patients with the, you know, the back imaging where everything looks perfectly fine, but yet they are having, you know, a lot of symptoms that are interfering with their functioning in their day-to-day life. So, um, you know, kind of trying to tease apart some of that. And I thought it had something to do with sort of like the overlap with the, with mental health. So I ended up doing, you know, I first trained in internal medicine, then psychiatry, and then I ended up really sort of still feeling like something was missing. And that's where, you know, this whole field of public health and the social dimensions of health really came into play. And that's when you start to realize, like, you know, that back pain is happening in a context of a lot of other stuff going on. And sometimes it takes not just examining, you know, the spinal column, but also like what's happening in that person's life that they might be experiencing more intense pain than other people. Kelly Harding is the author of The Rabbit Effect, Live Longer, Happier, and Healthier with the Groundbreaking Science of Kindness. It's a really fascinating read and a very positive one as well. Kelly, thanks so much. Oh, my pleasure. Dear Mom and Dad, one thing I've learned in the Army is that when you're lucky enough to get a little time off, you should put it to good use. So I'm taking a moment to write and tell you that I'm fine and doing well. We have good days and bad days over here. We try to remember the good ones and get through the bad ones as best we can. Mostly we have each other. And that's what keeps us going. That and the pride of our commitment to getting the job done, whatever it takes. I miss you all very much and can't wait to get back to life as usual. Please tell everybody hello for me that I'll be home soon. And mom, since you asked, if anyone wants to help, just tell them to contact the USO. You can't believe how much they do for us. With love, your son Michael. The USO depends on the generosity of the American people people just like you. To find out how you can help, visit us at uso.org. The USO, until everyone comes home. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, and it's time for an Ask Mr. Dad segment. Dear Mr. Dad, my 14-year-old daughter seems to believe that she needs to start dating. She says all of her friends are doing it and feels left out. 14 just seems too young. I don't think anyone, boy or girl, should start until at least 16. I want to tell her over my dead body, but I also don't want to be that dad. What can I do? As the father of three daughters, two of whom made it through their teen years without getting pregnant, the third is 16, and I'm quite confident she'll do the same, I definitely feel your pain. The very idea of your little girl alone with a boy can bring up all sorts of emotions, headlined by anger. Boys that age have only one thing on their mind, and worry. How can I possibly protect her? Let's start with the only one thing on their mind idea. Do you really believe that? TV, movies, and the internet put a lot of pressure on teens to have as much sex as they can, as often as they can, with as many different people as possible. But the reality is that the majority of boys your daughter's age are petrified of girls, and what's most likely on their mind is, I'm hungry. As far as the how-can-I-protect-her idea, you have two things going for you. First, your daughter herself doesn't sound like she's all that into it and just wants to date because everyone else is. By telling you that, she's almost begging you to say no. 
Second, even if dates were her idea, you're right. 14 is too young for serious one-on-one dating. That said, you can't just play the tough guy and expect her to be happy about it. In fact, the more forcefully you forbid dating, the more you'll push her towards it. Here's what to do instead. Really talk to her. You have a wonderful opportunity here. Your daughter actually came to you with a problem. That says a huge amount, in a good way, about your relationship. Ask her to tell you more about the dating her friends are doing, the pressure she feels, and what she actually means by dating. You might be thinking dinner, movie, make out in the backseat of the car, or maybe skip the first two and just get right down to number three. But she might be thinking, hold hands and share an ice cream cone. Listen carefully and don't be judgmental. When you sense an opportunity, talk to her about the dangers of dating, including violence, which, by the way, is just as likely to be initiated by girls as boys. Talk about relationships, sex, and the finances involved. You're not going to wrap this up in one conversation, so take it a step at a time. Establish some dating rules. Number one is that group dates are okay, one-on-one dates are not. End of story. Group dates let her be with the boy who makes her blush, but in a setting where inappropriate behavior is a lot less likely. Tag along. In my view, groups of young teens shouldn't be out and about without an adult nearby. There's too much opportunity for things to go sideways. And if you want your daughter to see how serious you are, be the chaperone. Don't be right in the middle of the group or try to be everyone's buddy. That would only embarrass your daughter. Instead, walk half a block behind and sit a few rows away in the movie. But be there. Watch carefully and let her enjoy herself. If you've got a question or a comment on anything you've heard on Positive Parenting or something you'd like to hear, please do let us know. You can drop us a line through our website, mrdad.com. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at mrdad.com. While you're there, visit the mrdad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the mrdad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.